So I meant to have a, uh, meant to have some props with me, but I got you know a little busy with a small child running around my legs and didn't forgot to bring one with me. You have to imagine it's your head. Um, if I was holding a glass of water with ice in it and in it, if I was holding these two things in my head and I said, you know, what do these things have in common? What do you think he would answer? What would you answer? What's the, what's the, the same thing in common between a glass of ice water and an egg? <laughs> if you were here last week, you kind of might know the answer already. Um, those are two objects that a lot of people use when they try to teach the Trinity. And I think those are a perfect examples, and we'll talk about the end about using props for teaching the Trinity of why this topic is so difficult because um, even with those things, those common analogies, a glass of ice, water, and an egg, they can be good at showing us what the Trinity's about. They're not perfect. And that's what makes the talk of the trilogy so interesting is because even if we think, oh, I know what the Trinity's like, the Trinity's like an egg, the Trinity's like an apple, the Trinity is like a glass of ice water. The reality is it's not exactly true. And so we need to understand the difference between the analogies we use sometimes and what the Bible actually says about who God is. In fact, that's the whole point of this series. This is the last lesson I'm going to do in this series that's entitled, What is God Like? And the whole point being we need to know what God's like because that's important. Uh, it affects what we do, it affects how we pray, it affects how we worship, and if they're too far off the mark, they can even affect whether you're saved or not. And the Trinity is no exception. In fact, um, this, this part of all the lessons, this one night that we're having tonight, probably is the one that is the most difficult to teach, the most difficult to understand. But it's also one that's, in a way, affects us the most. Because I want you to think about it this way. We talk about, for example, that Jesus is God's son. We talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, what do you say to a child who comes up to you and says, how is Jesus God's son? Because Jesus was never born. Jesus was always around. So if Jesus always existed, how does the Bible also say that Jesus is God's only begotten son? That's a good question. And second graders, first graders are asking questions like that. And you need to be able to, whether it's kids in your family or kids in the church, to be able to tell them and answer that to that question without them telling them heresy. <laughs> you know, to tell it to them rightly, because whatever you tell them then, they're probably gonna stick with it. So we need to understand who is who do we talk about when we say God's a trinity. Because it affects us, it affects the kids we talk to, and it even affects the gospel we preach and what happened on the cross. The hard part with the Trinity is we usually face two obstacles. One is that we think, well, this is so hard, or it's, it's, so, it's something that is um, so different that we maybe shouldn't even try. And that's not a, a justifiable. We should give effort to it. The Bible has verses, it tells us some things, and we should learn about who God is and not be afraid to approach those questions. Another thing we can be afraid of is say, hey, you know, 
Maybe it's not that big a deal. We just need to love Jesus and we're all right. But again, a kid's going to ask you, an adult, you might be witnessing to somebody, and an adult might ask you. I've had that problem with me before, where somebody wanted to be a Christian, but they wanted to believe that there were three gods, a Father and Son and Holy Spirit, not one God. And they refused to believe in a trinity. Well, you can't be saved if you believe there's three gods like that. That's not what it means that there's a trinity. And so it's extremely important for us to get this down. If not for ourselves, just for the ability to talk to people if they ask us questions about it. Because of all the things that we've talked about over the last several weeks, the trinity is one aspect of Christian theology that makes us stand out. No other religion talks about their God as being a trinity of people. Um, even Christian sects like Mormonism doesn't have a trinity of people. That's something that's different that nobody else can claim. And so if we're going to claim that God is something nobody else claims he is, we better know what we're talking about when we claim it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What I'm going to do is... Instead of focusing on like speculation of how the Trinity works and that kind of stuff, I'm going to talk about these five facts that the Bible does give. And these are five things that we absolutely have to hold to be true. And then I'm going to talk about some errors that have happened in the past, some problems that have come up that people still kind of hold today, maybe. And so we know to be looking out for them if somebody says it, maybe even somebody might say it in church because they haven't been here on Wednesday to hear this lesson. And so that's the way they think about the Trinity. You might be in Sunday school and, and here it'd be like, okay, that's, that's one of those errors we talk about. We need to correct. We need to try to address this. Um, and then we'll talk about more about analogies. One thing that's important for us to remember as we do the Trinity, before we even get started, though, is that of all the doctrines in Christianity, the Trinity is probably the oldest. You can see people already discussing the Trinity in the letters written in the Bible. The issue of who is Jesus, how does he relate to God, who is the Holy Spirit, how does he relate to God, what do we mean by Heavenly Father? This is stuff that the writers that are in our Bible were already talking about. You know, when they, they weren't really addressing issues like uh, eschatology, you know, when does the rapture happen? They didn't really talk about that, but they were talking about the Trinity. So from, from the very beginning, a lot of really, really smart people spent their whole lives reading, arguing, and talking about this thing. And so when we stand here, we're need to, we need to stand on their shoulders and not backtrack. Because a lot of people, when they talk about the Trinity, their issue is they want to approach it with like a fresh new look. But when you have something that's been this talked about for this long, you're not going to get a fresh new look. Anything you say about the Trinity has probably already been said at some point in the past. It's possible that people have already proved that you're wrong and you're just repeating the wheel. There's no need to repeat the wheel. You just need to figure out where people are now. And so these are the five facts that after these 2,000 years of people discussing it, we say as believers in Jesus Christ, we absolutely have to hold to regarding what does it mean that we have a trinity. First one is this, that we have one God. We worship one God. We don't have three gods named three different names. We have one God. And so 
hopefully some of the, hopefully y'all believe in most of these. That's what will stick on the airs most of the time. But some might get Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And some might get James 2, 19. Just a couple of passages to prove that. One in the New Testament, one in the Old. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. What's that? All right, thanks, Jan. And then James 2, 19. It's events. All right, then whenever y'all get there, y'all can just read. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, yes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Yep. And then James 2.19. Then whenever you're ready. All right. So New Testament, Old Testament, both of them make clear statements. We have one God and we worship one God. We're not Mormonism where you have a father and then a son and then a Holy Spirit is three different beings. We only have one being and he's God. And we can't deny that. In fact, Judaism, even today, still upholds that as being a crucial value. And we should too. The second fact we should hold to is that even though God is one, he also exists as three persons, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That there's multiple people or persons, really, that consist of that one God. Somehow, <laughs> somehow, God consists as three persons, even though he's one God. So you begin to see this a little bit in the Old Testament. It's not very blatant in the Old Testament which is why perhaps the Jews today don't really hold to the Trinity. But you do see little snippets, little hints of it in the Old Testament. So Genesis 1.26, somebody get that. All right. Uh, and then Isaiah 6.8 is a good one too. And God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky. Yeah, so he said, let us make man in our image. Both of those were plural pronouns. And then Isaiah 6, 8 is even better in my opinion. Did you say Josh? Well, Jane, you have already? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? And who will go before us? And I said, here am I. So Isaiah 6, 8 is even better. Because he basically repeats the question, but the first time he says I, and the second time he says us. So he uses two different pronouns, even though it's clearly a repetition of the same question. So um, there's other stuff like the, the word God in the Hebrew is actually plural, even though you you don't you say it as singular. So Elohim is the Hebrew for God. That's technically plural. But it, we speak of it as singular. So there's all these little clues in the Old Testament that God, even though he's a single entity, he's a single being, there's a plurality of persons that exist and, and coincide and work together with, as that one being. This becomes more blatant in the New Testament. And we're not going to read these passages because hopefully you're already familiar with them. But you got Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is being baptized, the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. You have um, Matthew 28 at the end, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, Jesus tells them the name, singular, but then lists three people, 
So the name of God includes three different people, a singular with the, with the plurality of three. Um, you have blessings in the Old Testament, the New Testament. I mean, I could just, I've got an entire page of, page and a half of New Testament quotes that show that we have a God who exists as three people. So the second thing we have to conclude is, even though there's not one verse we can go to that says, hey, we serve a God who's one, one being that exists in three persons. There's not a verse that says that blatantly. There's enough evidence, especially in the New Testament, that shows that's true, that it's, it makes sense why within the first few decades that Christianity existed, they latched onto this as being true. And then this has been a mark of being an Orthodox Christian for 2000 years. In other words, when you say Orthodox Christian, you're saying a mark is my who's a good has enough correct belief that they're actually saved. If somebody's not an Orthodox Christian, you're basically saying they're not saved. All right. So we got, um, oh, Jim's not here. I thought he'd like this. So one of the illustrations I wanted to use of this, how, how do we describe something as being singular, but also plural, that has come up recently is, is in physics and life. Now, when you have a light, and if you're in physics, there's sometimes that scientists treat light as if it's particles, a bunch of particles that are working together. And there's sometimes when they study light, they treat like it's a wave, like it's a single wave that's emanating. And so there's actually a uh, physicist I read that he said, uh, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we think of light as being a wave. And on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, we think of light as being a bunch of particles. So scientists can't explain that. They don't, if you ask the physicist, how is light both a wave and a particle? They don't know. That's one of the mysteries of physics right now. And God is kind of like, that's a good illustration. It's like he is a single God, but he also is three persons at the same time. And we can't fully understand that because we're a single being and a single person, but that's just the way it is. So the, the third fact we have to affirm that coincides is that each of those three persons are fully God by themselves. What I mean is if you take one of them away, like Jesus, Jesus is not, God doesn't get detracted by a third if Jesus gets removed. It's not like Jesus is a third God, Holy Spirit is a third God, and the Father is a third God. So that if you took one of them away, God would only be two-thirds like two of them left. Each one of them is fully God by himself. That's what makes it so hard to understand. Um, and we'll talk about why this affects our analogies in a second. So nothing in this world exists that way. Um, now, I'll go ahead and do it because I think it's a good example. So the water example, the water cup. Have you ever taught, any of y'all taught the Trinity using glass of water before, ice water? Curiosity. I have. Um, the problem with that analogy is that the water can't be all three states at the same time. Water is either a liquid, either is a gas, or, or, or it's a solid. And, but you can't have a piece of water that's a gas, a liquid, and a solid at the same time. But that's basically what God is. If God was water, he would be gas, liquid, and solid all at once. 
That's why the analogies don't always work. So each of these, each, when we say, so we, we can say Jesus is God, not a part of God. The Father is God, not a part of God. The Holy Spirit is God. Um, everybody, it's been obvious that the Father is God. Nobody debates that. There has been debates about whether Jesus is God. There's still debates, not, not from like our church, but I mean, in the world, people want to say Jesus is not God. But there's passages like Ephesians 2, 5, and 11 that says he is. That's the famous prayer, you know, not considering yourself equality with God, something to be grasped, humble himself, and name the likeness of man. You know, he, he had the equality of God at one point. Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the exact radiance and the glory of God. Then the Holy Spirit was passages that praise God. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, where they lie, they sell part of their property, and they give the money to the church, but they keep some of it. But they told the church they gave them all of it. So they lied to the church. And Peter says, hey, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And because you lied to God, you're going to die. So in like the same breath, he says the Holy Spirit's God right there. And there's other passages that say the same thing. So when we think about the Holy Spirit and we think about the three persons, we have to think each three, each of them are fully God, not a piece of God. The fourth thing we have to affirm is they have different roles, but even if they're doing their own role, the other two are still working with them. And we'll, I'll give an analogy for this. So we're not going to uh, explain how vulnerable is today. That could probably be a whole three lessons in itself. But, for example, in salvation, you have the Father's the one that orders and wills and chooses salvation. The Son was the one who came and died and obtained salvation. The Spirit's the one that sanctifies us and brings salvation to us. In creation, you have the Father, who's the one that's actually creating. You have the Son, who's the, the Word, the one that's act, the active one in creating. And the Holy Spirit, who's hovering over creation while it's happening. And so you have these distinct roles that they're doing. But even... Even though each of them have a priority in some of this stuff, you have to realize that all three are actually acting at the same time. Because if you don't, you're serving three different gods. And the best analogy I have for this is a football team. If you follow football stats, you know, if somebody scores a touchdown, they'll say, like the running back, the running back scored a touchdown. Now, you know, that the running back was not the only person on the field for the offense, right? <laughs> it wasn't just the running back that scored that touchdown, but everybody on that team was working together to get that running back across the finish line. And that's kind of how the Trinity works. Some items, one of the three people might take the lead, especially when we talk about it. But the other two are intimately involved in what's going on. So in the cross, the Holy Spirit of God was still involved at the cross. The Father wasn't the one on the cross, but he was involved in what was happening, in salvation, in creation. They never do anything without the other two with them. In, so they work, they have individual roles, but they all work together. All right. Any, any questions from those three? I feel like most of those probably four are probably okay before we get to the last one. And then the, 
the problem with analogies and errors. I want to make sure we have plenty of time for conversation, so I'm going through this part fast. Well, you gotta you gotta remember, everybody gotta remember that God is God. The things He does, people don't even think it is possible. Mm -hmm. but, but God has the authority to do it all. Mm -hmm. the, God Himself, through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, He has the authority to do it all through Him. He actually works through them for our benefit. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's why he can do the Trinity. I mean, that's why it's possible because he's God. Can I ask you to read what you said? God ordered it, Jesus brought it, and the Holy Spirit brings it to us, brings it to us. And, and secures it so we can't lose it. Like I said, and delineating those three people to be a whole three weeks in itself. So those are just examples. Um, the importance of remembering that all the people are involved helps keep us from thinking of God as being three different beings. Right. You know, it's because it's he's never doing anything as a separate person. There's always all three involved in it. Um, so the last part uh, we'll talk about, and this this part's uh, I think a little bit more confusing actually, is traditionally they have described that there's a difference in the way the three people relate to each other. Josh is already laughing. You must know where I'm going with this. <laughs> traditionally, uh, historically, people have made a distinction too in how the three persons relate to one within the Godhead. So the, tr the traditional way of saying it is that uh, the father begets the son. The son is eternally being begotten from the father. And the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from both of them. That's the way they normally put it. So what we mean by that, and we have to put the word eternally, is that the son and the Holy Spirit were never created from the father. But from all eternity past, all the way to eternity future, the Father is eternally, continually begetting the Son. And the Holy Spirit is eternally and continually proceeding out of the Father and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why in the world do they make those distinctions? Well, because there's verses that say that, and so we have to put it in there somewhere. And that, for one reason, explains their names. Why is the father a father? Well, he's a father because he's the one that eternally begets. Why is the son a son? Well, he's the one that is eternally being begotten from the father. Why is the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit? He's the, the spirit that forms and proceeds from both of them. Now, Augustine had an interesting way of looking at it. He said, if you think about it in terms of love, that the father is the one who eternally loves. The son is the one who is eternally loved. And the Holy Spirit is the love that's between them, eternally. It's a different way of kind of conveying it using love. Um, the reason why this is so important is because there's some people today that take the term Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they 
use them to mean um, that there's different ranks between them. Like the father has more authority than the son. The son has more authority than the Holy Spirit forever. And that there's an order between them. And the reason why people, and this is not so horrible we call it heresy, but the reason why most evangelicals like us don't agree with that is because it seems like if there's an order of rank and authority, then that basically makes them three different people. And it's hard to just say they're the same God if there's a difference in subordination between them. And so what happens is when Jesus came to earth, he temporarily, what we say, is he temporarily gave up his equality with God and lived life like we do in subordination to God, in obedience to God, with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, just like we do. He experienced life just like us. But before he was... Jesus on earth, and after he went back to heaven, he doesn't have to do that. He's not hearing orders from the Father and being powered by the Holy Spirit. He's back together like he was before, just with the body this time. Um, and so it, that is, I only say that because that is a, uh, a belief that you might, like I said, it, it's, it's not that uncommon, but it's one I don't agree with. And so I want to let you know it's out there that I don't agree with, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they were um, always had an order of subordination with themselves, that their names derived from their relationship with one another, not their level of authority with one another. Does that make sense? Okay, clear as mud. That's good. <laughs> what did Jesus tell the disciples when they got to hear the he says, I have to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come. Mm -hmm. So that's saying, you know, I'm not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I had to go to my father before the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah. They're different, they're different people for sure. Uh, different persons. You can't conflate them. All right, so the problem with analogies. The biggest problem with analogies is, like I said, there's nothing on earth that really adequately describes or pictures for us the Trinity. And we, we look for it, we try to find it, and because it helps us understand what God is like, and the problem is there's just nothing there. So the biggest analogies that we can use is the water one's fine as long as we realize that the Trinity is not three different stages in God, and an apple and an egg's fine as long as we know that the Trinity is not three different parts of God. Uh, again, it would be like if if the uh, whole egg was a yolk, a whole egg was a white, and a whole egg was a shell all at the same time. You know, that's not possible in our heads. But that's exactly what we mean when we say the Trinity. Um, and the it's idea still, of what? But it's still an egg. It's still an egg, yeah. And they're all egg by themselves. They're all egg together. Right. You know? right. Yes. Um, and the Augustine's thing about love is helpful, I think, even though there's other qualities to God than just love. And that's what we've been talking about. So that's kind of like a problem with that one is you can't really apply all of these to that same system. So what are some things we need to avoid? This is the one we think we see. Um, so, of course, you have people that say that there's only God is only one person. He only exists as one person. So you have Unitarians. Who's a Christian? They have Unitarian churches. That's why they're called Unitarians. There's one God. You know, almost every other religion that's monotheistic, like 
is long. It says that God's not a trinity. We as Christians can get in trouble with it if we focus too much on one of the persons to the neglect of the others. And so um, people kind of point out, well, you know, people who are Calvinist or Reformed focus almost maybe too much on the Father. People who are like us, who aren't Calvinist, Reformed, Baptist, we maybe focus too much on the Son. And people who are Charismatic and Pentecostals maybe focus too much on the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, you can be practical Unitarians if you're not careful with and remembering that there's three of them that we need to be worshiping and praying to and talking to. Of course, many reject the belief that there's more than one God, including Christian, I use that term loosely, sex, like by Mormonism, that claim that there are three separate individuals. And then the big ones, I think, that we see today, um, and one of them has a name, the name is called dynamic monarchianism, dynamic monarchianism. I call it spacesuit Jesus. I didn't make up that name. That's somebody told it to me and I thought it was cool. But this is basically the belief that Jesus was a normal guy. And when he got baptized, then the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and Jesus either, either became God when the, that is baptism or he at least became like a super juiced up religious person at his baptism. But he wasn't God before that. And he might not be God at his death either. That's why it's what's called spacesuit Jesus. It's like, it's an empty suit that basically God just put on and empowered for a period of time. And, you know, that's actually a fairly popular belief about who Jesus is right now. Um, not among, thankfully, our denomination, but it's out there. The one that Jesus became God at his denomination. Another one that's similar is called modalism. And this is the belief that the Trinity is not three separate persons, but three different names or titles of God at three different periods of time. So in the Old Testament, he kind of took on the title of Father, and then with Jesus, he took on the title of Son, and then now he's kind of taken on the title of Spirit. But it's not three different people. It's the same person. He's just changing it one half, putting on a different. And this is really what we are explaining when we use water. That's the problem with water. You know, water changes from one state to the next. That's really modalism, where God changes from one state to the next, but he can only be one at any time. And this is to the point of like the baptism. That's why this is wrong. Like, how can you have what happened at Jesus' baptism if he can only be one person at any time? Yes, Joe. Uh, in that respect, though, when uh, Jesus had John the Baptist baptized, uh, had he already been doing uh, the healing and miracle work before I don't think Jesus was healing before his baptism. Yeah, I think that was at the beginning yeah, of his ministry. Proceeding with uh, his, uh, uh, he started using power in, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. in, in the Greek. Yeah. Right. He was preaching before then in the synagogue, but he wouldn't do it in America. Yeah. His, his official like big ministry hadn't kicked off yet until that and his temptation right after. Um, 
And then a, another one that I've heard a lot, and this really comes up more on people that have taught the Trinity well, is what is they think of God's Son as being literally created by God. Because when we say Son, we think child created by us. And so it's popular, and, and, and it's really not something that's rash. It's really a misunderstanding. Um, so people say, well, Jesus is God's son, then that means that God created Jesus. Well, that's not true. That's not what we mean by God's son. Jesus was always around. He's eternal, just like the Father is. The Father didn't create him. That's not what we mean by God's son. And so we got to steer clear. And I, and I think this is where it's hard with children to explain Y'all feel me with that? Um, what, how is Jesus God's son? Well, he's God's son because of the relationship he has with the father. But he's not God's son because the father created him. And uh, that's hard for us to understand, really hard for kids to understand. But what we don't need to do is make sure we tell them the wrong, we don't want to tell them the wrong thing. You know, we just don't want to tell them the wrong thing. So they grow up thinking Jesus was a created being. And uh, because there's been people in the past that had heresies that have been kicked out of the church for saying that Jesus was a created being by God. So, any questions or comments? Or any, or I'd be interested to hear if you've seen somebody describe the Trinity incorrectly and how they did that, that kind of thing. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, yeah. He's God. Yeah. Two of them all in one. Yes. Yeah. And I should say with the Holy Spirit, similar to the Son, we got to avoid thinking the Holy Spirit as being a it or a force. He's a person. We use the pronoun he, capital H, just like Jesus and God. He's not an it. He's not a force. And I think that's just because he's called a spirit or he's called a ghost, you know, the old school translation. But he's not, he's not an inanimate force. You know, he is a he, a person. It's just, you know, name title problems. I hope, uh, you know, I didn't plan on trying to solve all the mysteries of the Trinity for you. I hope, though, I gave you at least five pegs that you can say we can make those sure those are true and I know there's scripture about them and I hope I gave you some errors to look out for uh, but do you have any questions about the Trinity you want to ask while we're on this topic? Well, it says Jesus is going to be sitting on the right hand of God mm -hmm. so that says there's another seat there right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, so Jesus still has a body a physical body um, a glorified body, which the other two don't have um, in that way. And so in that way, I mean, I guess there could be a literal seat. The Father doesn't really have a seat. He's a spirit. The importance of the right hand is more in terms of the significance than it is the literal of what happened. To sit at somebody's right hand means you're the most important person in the room next to the person that's actually in the seat. And that you're the one with the most authority outside the person's in D.C. And so when you talk about Jesus having the right hand of God, you're basically saying that Jesus is not a man. He is God, just like the Father. They're equals. That's why they get to sit like that. That's why Jesus couldn't give that seat 
to the disciples that asked, James and John. It says, you don't know what you asked for, because they're basically asking to be God, like Jesus is, and we can't do that. That's what I was just what's going through my mind at the time, that that was the reason why he told me, you don't know what you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's like, look, to be at my right hand is to be God, because I am God. I'm not just a teacher. So, um, and of course, with Jesus being physical, having a physical body, he can do things like stand. So at the death of St Stephen in the book of Acts is uh, one of the times you see Jesus at the right hand of God. And it's the only time you see him there, and he's actually standing up. So he's basically, in a sense, giving Stephen a standing ovation as he goes to be the first Christian who's ever killed for being a Christian. So it's a cool little tidbit of Jesus there. Jesus is also sitting on the right hand of the Father, mm -hmm. making intercession too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of his roles is to make intercession for us to the Father. That, that's the reason he, uh, he came to the earth mm -hmm. to go through what we go through, mm -hmm. the temptations and all, because we go through where he knows he'll know how to make intercession. Yeah, for us. that's right. He's our mediator. And between us and the Godhead, because he's is part, or I should say, fully man and fully God. And he's part of the Trinity that is that. I asked you last week and to clarify too is like, what is the unforgivable sin? Mm -hmm. And when it's uh, in scripture, it says the Holy Spirit, and he say it's to deny Christ, or mm -hmm. you're saying it all, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so the, uh, the unforgivable sin, Jesus says, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, you, people say, well, what's blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, according to the doctrine that we talked about, really blaspheming the Holy Spirit is blaspheming any of the three of them because they're all God. Now, why the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the Holy Spirit's the one that reaches out to us, that calls us to be saved, that tries to get us to say yes to God. And so when we reject the Holy Spirit or blaspheme him, we're basically telling him, no, I don't want to be saved. But people might not know they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They might be saying, I don't want to follow Jesus. But what they're actually doing is blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's the one that's reaching out to them. But because they're all the Trinity, to blaspheme one is to blaspheme really all three. To me, the difference is, is God capable of sin, so we can't go to God ourselves. Mm -hmm. Jesus is our God. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit lives in us to help us mm -hmm. communicate with Jesus on a daily basis. Yeah, people said three different people in the book of because each one has their own part. Yeah. And even, I mean, the Holy Spirit is usually described as being in us, but there are places that say Jesus is in us. You know, that's one of those examples that shows they're basically the same person, even though they're not the same people. You know, it's that weird, like they are the same people. They're not the same people, you know. Usually it's the Holy Spirit. There's a few places that says it's Jesus in our hearts, you know. That's all we can say that too.
Um, so the the closing thought, I, you know, I don't want y'all to answer, but as you leave, if you want to chew on it, I would challenge you to think about how would you answer a child that asked you, how is Jesus God's son? I want you to think about that, you know, because that could happen. It happens to me almost every BPS. <laughs> um, that happens to me and has happened to me talking to adults about the gospel. And with our discussion that we've had today and talks we've had in the past, how would you answer that question? How is Jesus God's son? It's just something for you to think about and meditate on as you leave out tonight. I'll pray for us and we'll conclude. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here today and to study your word, Lord. Um, we're actually thankful for the Trinity because as so many of them have said, Lord, the Trinity is the reason why we have salvation. It's the reason why we can have a relationship with you. Lord, it's the reason why we can have the assurance that you are with us. Um, and Lord, we're just thankful that too, just knowing that you're bigger and greater than us and you can do things that are impossible for us. And so Lord, we uh, pray and, and help to ask for help, to give us clarity, to help us understand this doctrine more and more every day of our lives that we would worship and pray and follow you um, in a Trinitarian way. And God, we just um, pray that you help us. And if there's any comes a day where we do have to explain this dynamics that you have within yourself, that we don't have anything on earth to really look at and point to, that you'd help us to have a clear mind and a concrete words to say to them as best as we can um, so we don't leave them astray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us on the cross and for all the ways that you serve us even today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, see ya. <laughs>